Good morning. For the next two lectures, I'm going to have a few multiple choice questions, and I'm not calling them clicker questions because the in oh, the internet continues to be down. Now it says internet access, but now I don't have enough time to go into the cloud, so we'll just do do the clicker for the second half, okay? Welcome to Grenada. It happens anywhere. It happens anywhere. It happens in New York City. We've been learning a little bit about intermediary metabolism. We've already started with glycolysis. Did you um, get a chance to look at the um, asynchronous online content bioenergetics? Well, I, I hope you, you have because it begins to link in how the processes flow um, through glycolysis, through things like the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, how metabolites flow through the citric acid cycle. You'll notice that um, it, particularly with the citric acid cycle, it's a circular um, a set of reactions where the product of one reaction is now becomes the substrate for the next reaction and so forth. There's, that's why we call it a, a cycle. We have to be able to have the substrates that fill in intermediates into this cycle because some of these intermediates are not just used for the citric acid cycle. You're going to be learning how a lot of the intermediates go out and they help with fatty acid synthesis. They help with start off gluconeogenesis and that's um, the opposite pathway from um, glycolysis. How, what dictates how these reactions go is often, often has to do with a lot of bioenergetics that you will be learning about if you do look at that asynchronous online content. So that will help tie everything in, so I urge you to, to visit that even after you've had this series of, um, of the, when you finish off intermediate metabolism. If you think about metabolism, we can always section things down into particular groups. We have three different groups of catabolism, and we're catabolizing your food sources in this case. We have carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. If you look at the top of this slide, all uh, the metabolism of the amino acids, that came from your proteins, fatty acids from the fat in your diet, glucose, and that's from the carbohydrates in your diet, they all generate electrons. And these electrons eventually make their way to, uh, right at the bottom of the, of the slide here, oxidative phosphorylation. So we're going to be talking about the three parts, oxidation of fatty acids, glucose, and some amino acids to yield a high-energy molecule, and this high-energy molecule is called acetyl-CoA. Pyruvate is the last molecule of glycolysis, and that's the only molecule that can freely cross the inner mitochondrial membrane. To the left, I'm circling a mitochondrial pyruvate carrier complex. Now, we knew for a long time that pyruvate had to be allowed access to the, across the inner mitochondrial membrane, but we actually didn't know the genes that made up the proteins that allowed protein, uh, pyruvate to go into the inner mitochondrial membrane. Now we know two subunits, and this is new, this is just a, a, a few years old, MPC1 and MPC2. So it's a protein complex of these two isoforms, and there's actually a few other proteins that they haven't quite identified yet. But it's this special transport system that allows pyruvate to go across the inner mitochondrial membrane. None of the other molecules from glycolysis can actually make it through. 
I have this dotted line at the top of your slide because that suggests that after pyruvate, we're pyruvate moving in across the inner mitochondrial membrane, and now everything below this red dotted line happens inside the mitochondria. Part two, we have the oxidation of acetyl groups in the citric acid cycle, which includes four steps where electrons are abstract, uh, abstracted. So you're going to need to know these four steps that are highlighted at the bottom, that word I'm circling here, of the citric acid cycle. Electrons are then carried by these two, these two molecules, NADH and FADH2, funneled into the respiratory chain in the production of ATP. So from start to finish, we have three lectures. We have this pyruvate dehydrogenase TCA cycle. Then we're going to be talking about the electron transport chain. And then tomorrow, we're going to be talking about oxidative phosphorylation. And then we'll get some cool stuff about, you know, we're going to be discussing medical type stuff when we're speaking about patients and how they're affected, how, how their um, oxidative phosphorylation can become affected. We've learned a little bit about the fates of pyruvate. We know um, glucose breaks down during glycolysis to generate this molecule pyruvate. Pyruvate's a very important molecule, and, a lot, and, and pyruvate can be converted to a lot of things to go down a lot of different pathways. We call this um, a keto acid or a carboxylic acid. It can be transaminated to alanine, and that's that amino acid. So we just put an amine group um, on the molecule. We can carboxylate, carboxylation to uh, make this molecule oxaloacetate, and you're going to be mating oxaloacetate molecule in a few moments. We have this reduction that we've learned about from Dr. Dr. Opadja, how pyruvate can be reduced to lactate, and we're going to be focusing today on oxidative decarboxylation, pyruvate being converted to acetyl-CoA, and this reaction happens in the mitochondria. So pyruvate has to move into the mitochondria in order for the next steps of these reactions to occur. So how exactly do we get this acetyl-CoA? Here we're linking glycolysis to the citric acid cycle, also known as TCA or tricarboxylic acid cycle. Pyruvate is oxidized to TCA with a, a protein complex, a very large protein complex called pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. How do we get these carbons from glucose to the TCA? Well, we're using this pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, and that supplies two-carbon substrate for the TCA cycle, where we have pyruvate um, uh, being converted to the acetyl-CoA, and we lose a carbon dioxide and two electrons. And so the TCA cycle is one of the major oxidative cycles in the cell, and we're going to be learning in detail how the energy we harness through the citric acid cycle, we yield eight electrons. We have something called substrate-level phosphorylation, where we generate GTP from GDP. And so you have to learn, as you go through these lectures, how to separate this substrate-level phosphorylation to generate ATP, the energy currency of the cell, GTP and ATP actually have the same uh, amount of energy that, that can be used in cellular processes. So you have to be able to separate substrate-level phosphorylation to get ATP from oxidative phosphorylation, which we're going to be learning about in the next lecture. Now in glycolysis, do we have substrate-level phosphorylation reactions? How many? Two. Nice. The, the, um, the citric acid cycle generates four reduced electron carriers, and there are three NADH molecules and one FADH2 molecule. Now, these molecules, which are generated from the citric acid cycle, 
we're going to be learning how they can be generated from the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. And were there any generated in glycolysis? Yeah, there was. So we're going to be learning how those, um, those carriers, those electron carriers, feed in and become substrate for oxidative phosphorylation. The pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, this complex is in the inner, in the, inside the mitochondrial matrix where we convert a three-carbon molecule pyruvate um, with the help of NAD+. We convert this to acetyl-CoA. So two carbons come from pyruvate. They combine with CoH, also known as CoA. It's ash because we have um, that proton at the end. We have the reduced molecule. Um, after reaction through the complex, it's a multi-step reaction. And at the end, we generate this NA a molecule of NADH. We lose CO2, so we lose a carbon. And now we have an acetyl group that I'm circling right here on your, on your screen. We have an acetyl group that's attached to the CoA. We have a very high energy bond between that sulfur and the carbon of the acetyl group. So that's a high energy bond, and I hope you've learned in that bioenergetics lecture that high energy bond can be used to make something happen. Um, a number of different reactions that um, molecule helps drive other reactions forward that might be otherwise energetically unfavorable. A little bit about NAD+. This is the oxidized form of the molecule. It will accept electrons. It's an oxidizing agent. NADH is the reduced form of the molecule. It can donate electrons. Um, it's called a reducing agent. And uh, many of you might have different mnemonic devices, how to remember it. This is my favorite, Leo says Gur. Have you heard that one? I know there's oil rig, but this one, I like the Leo says Gur a little bit better. L Leo, losing electrons is oxidation. Um, Gur, gaining electrons is reduction. Sometimes it helps f f organize your brain as you're trying to figure out what these redox reactions. Now the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex has three basic subunits, and we call them E1, or catalytic domains, which are also subunits E1, E2, and E3. It's actually a huge molecule, and it's actually very quite ele elegant. If you look at the electron micrograph picture of the protein complex, it's this, it's this big blob with the little spheres, and if you slice open a molecule or a big complex of the PDH complex, inside we have the E2 subunits all arranged in sort of like a buckyball. Does anybody, has anybody taken organic chemistry? Okay, like a soccer ball. We all know what a soccer ball looks like, yeah? So the, inner, uh, the E2 part of um, the complex, it looks like a soccer ball. Then it's surrounded by a number of E1 subunits. And every once in a while, there's an E3 subunit that works in the outer shell. Amazing molecule. So this um, complex plays a pivotal role in metabolism, and it is the limiting rate step of oxi uh, for the oxidative glucose consumption. PDH is very, very regulated because it has to respond to all metabolic requirements. If you think about you woke up this morning, you were hungry, and you haven't had any food sources, so pyruvate dehydrogenase activity is low. When you start eating, you have to start bring, um, turning on your pyruvate PDH complex in order to start metabolizing the food sources. And then when you're sitting doing your studies, you need a little bit of energy because you have to keep awake. But then you start to um, get hungry, and then you eat again. So if you think about 
all the ways that your pyruvate dehydrogenase complex has to work. It can't be just on and off. It has to have these different levels of activity in order for you to be healthy and happy. Several cofactors are required for this regulated system. Some of these molecules are covalently bound. They're called prosthetic groups on the, molecule, on the complex. Some of, these are just, some of the molecules are just cofactors. And to further complicate this stuff, there's a protein that phosphorylates pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. Do you know what class of proteins uh, phosphorylate proteins? Kinases. There's a number of isoforms of kinases that help phosphorylate the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. And if you have kinases, what do you have to have as well? What other proteins do you have to have? Phosphatases. So we have a couple of phosphatases that will dephosphorylate. In the case of pyruvate dehydrogenase, if you have a high amount of ATP in the cell, that cell has, high that has a lot of energy in it, do you think you need to make more ATP if, your energy, um, if the energy of your cell is high? ATP actually begins to inhibit pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. So ATP is the substrate for kinase. Kinase will phosphorylate the complex when it wants to shut off the complex. If we have low ATP in the cell, so we have a high concentration of ADP, in that situation, it will stimulate the activity of the phosphatase. We have this reversible phosphorylation of these, the kinases and phosphatases. They're not, they're not a part of the complex themselves, but these kinases and phosphatases exist in the space between E2 and the E1 outer shell, ready for activity, ready to do um, to do its work, either to turn it down a little bit or to turn up the complex activity in case we need it. Here's a picture. This is my picture from a publication, so I, I like it. I have to toot my own horn. So we have the E2 <laughs> inner soccer ball surrounded by the E1 complexes. E2 is tethered to E1. It has a, 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 poly, a polypeptide that attaches the E2 to E1. And it has these swinging lipoic arms that actually help drag the kinase around and helps drag the phosphatase around. So even though they're not linked to the complex, they're associated with the complex to do their work. Oh my, that didn't work well at all. What happened here? Okay, how about we do that? Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Um, so this is a picture of the regulation of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. If you start at the bottom, we know pyruvate is converted to acetyl-CoA. It generates NADH and CO2. So we have um, above it in the, in the light orange, we have the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex active. So the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex can be regulated by high concentrations of product. So it's sort of like um, product inhibition because if we have high concentrations of acetyl-CoA, high concentrations of NADH in the cell, that will help inhibit the activity of the complex because we don't, we don't have a lot of substrate, but we got a lot of product, so we can start to turn it down. So the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex is regulated by NADH and acetyl-CoA. Now, if we have activity um, working and we don't, we don't have to have the complex anymore, we'll have a high energy state of the cell, we'll have high concentrations of ATP, that will, that's the substrate for the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase. So we'll phosphorylate the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, in particular at E1. 
Many things actually regulate the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, so it needs ATP, and it's um, activated in the presence of acetyl-CoA and NADH. And if you think about this, this makes sense, because if we've used up all our pyruvate to generate NADH and acetyl-CoA, for sure we want to um, stimulate PDH kinase activity to turn it off, because we have all of the, the product that we need. We can start to turn it off in those products. Not only do they inhibit the, the complex, they also stimulate the kinase activity. If we have a lot of pyruvate in the system and not so much NADH and acetyl-CoA, that means the cell really wants to use that pyruvate, so pyruvate itself will inhibit the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase. So if we've, if we've inhibited the kinase, we phosphorylated, I'm sorry, not, if we've inhibited the complex, we phosphorylated the complex, we have an inactive complex, but when it's time, when you just start to eat, when it's time when you wake up in the morning and you have breakfast, we have to relieve that inhibition. So PDH phosphatase comes in, does its work, and it's stimulated by calcium. So in words, the next couple of slides have the activation of the phosphatases. Phosphatase is stimulated by calcium, um, and sometimes insulin and adipocytes in liver. Um, but calcium is the major is a major um, thrust in skeletal muscle. Then we have the regulation of the kinases, so please be familiar with that. The whole complex itself at, itself at the bottom of the slide is inhibited by acetyl-CoA um, and NADH, and we have our kinase being inhibited by pyruvate, activated by ATP, acetyl-CoA, and NADH. So the kinase phosphorylates the complex, thus inhibiting it. So yeah, this is not going to work, so just think about, <laughs> think about which of the proteins of the PDH complex is activated by calcium. And when we're talking about complex, we're talking about all of these, all of these enzymes working together as a group. E1, E2, or E3? No. So it's either the kinase or the phosphatase. Phosphatase? Yeah, it's the phosphatase. Calcium stimulates... PDH phosphatase to work. So just to recapitulate the regulation of pyruvate dehydrogenase, yes, you have to know all of the factors on this slide. So we're going to be speaking, we're going to speak a little bit about um, the, the E1, E2, and E3 themselves. There are three bound prosthetic groups and two cofactors. The three bound prosthetic groups thiamine pyrophosphate, and that comes from B1. And if you haven't already, I urge you to start a list of vitamins and the proteins um, that the vitamins, uh, the proteins that need the particular vitamin. So keep a list. You'll have to call this up very quickly on exams and, and, and such. TPP is the nickname for thiamine pyrophosphate, and that comes from B1. Lipoic acid, this comes from octanoic acid. FAD comes from B2. TPP is a prosthetic group of E1, lipoic acid is a prosthetic group of E2, and FAD is a prosthetic group of E3, which means that they're covalently bound to the proteins. Cofactors that can come in and out a little bit freely, that's NAD, and that's from B3, coenzyme A is from B5. You have to know this cold, you have to know this cold. Five cofactors, tender loving care for Nancy, remember this mnemonic, okay? There's three complexes in the cell 
that you may be learning about the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. We're soon to learn about alpha-ketoglutarate complex. That's what you need to know for now. They both require tender loving care from Nancy. A little bit about the bound prosthetic groups. This is what thiamine pyrophosphate looks like. I'm circling. And again, it's covalently bound to E1. And that's the active site of E. That's right at the active site of E1. E2 has lipoic acid, so you see this disulfide bond here, so it can exist in the oxidized and the reduced state. In the oxidized state, it's closed. In the reduced state, it's opened up, and typically something is attached to that disulfide bond, or in, in place of that disulfide bond. E3 has the bound prosthetic group, um, FAD, also known as adenine, flavin adenine dinucleotide, and that's from B2 again. To the left, I have the reduced form, sorry, the riboflavin, the oxidized form. It can get reduced as we move from left to right to the reduced form. And the red arrows um, on the left-hand side indicate where the electrons come on and go, and go off. The cofactor, NADH, and that's derived from niacin, vitamin B3. Please remember where we have um, the nitrogen with a plus line. This is where the electrons can come on and off. Coenzyme A, and this is that high energy molecule. If it's bound to something, it will hold the high energy and be able to deliver a molecule from one, um, so like from substrate to product, and in a very energetically favorable fashion, and it's derived from B5 and pantanoic acid. This cartoon is not in your Lippincott, but I, um, is from the Leninger's Principles of Biochemistry, and then we're going to be show I'm going to be showing you the figure that you see in your Lippincott book. Um, let's follow the carbon. So pyruvate is a three-carbon molecule. It comes to the active site of E1. In that TPP, um, we attach uh, the two-carbon unit. We call it a hydroxyethyl TPP now. So we have the, um, the two carbons attached now to two TPP. In the green blob, we have the E2 molecule, or the E2 um, uh, catalytic domain, where we have the oxidized lipo lipoyolysine, when it um, grabs onto that two-carbon unit, we now, it's now reduced, and we call it acyl lipoylysine. Then we have that CoA molecule, which will take the two-carbon um, molecule that's on the, the sulfur group. We have, we're creating like a high-energy bond in order to be able to transfer um, the, 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 the two-carbon unit onto the acetyl-CoA. So, so now we call it acetyl-CoA. Now we have this reduced lipoylysine. So the reaction has happened. Pyruvate has been converted to acetyl-CoA. Now we need to regenerate the active enzyme. And that's where the, the next two, um, the cofactor and the prosthetic group come into play, where we have FAD um, will help regenerate that oxidized lipoylysine. And then when we generate the FADH2, the reduced molecule, we have to reoxidize it, and that's where the NAD comes in. And then we generate NADH plus H plus. This figure is in, your, um, is in your Lippincott textbook, which essentially says the same thing. However, it misses the, where the, 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 the catalytic domains are. So I like having the catalytic domains added. So the NADH that's generated here will go directly to the can go directly to the electron transport chain. The acetyl-CoA inside of the mitochondria, now it can go into the TCA cycle. So we're catalyzing the reaction of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA to enter the TCA. 
Hans Krebs is, is the fellow who organized out the TCA cycle. Also, so it has many names, tricarboxylic acid cycle, Krebs, citric acid cycle. We're speaking about the two carbon molecule that came from the pyruvate and how uh, we combine it with a molecule called oxaloacetate and that's a four carbon molecule to generate this six carbon molecule, which is citric acid. The next reaction after that, we're generating an NADH. The following reaction, we generate uh, another NADH. We generate a GTP by substrate level phosphorylation, FADH2 at, at a further reaction, and a third molecule of NADH. Input into the TCA cycle, this is um, at the bottom I'm circling um, the cycle itself with all of the um, intermediates of the TCA cycle. I have red arrows around this TCA cycle indicating sometimes we have to put molecules into the TCA cycle. There's two situations. Oxaloacetate can be converted to aspartate, so we take things out of the intermediates of the TCA cycle and to the right, alpha-ketoglutarate can be um, converted to glutamine and then to glutamic acid and then to glutamine. So reactions take intermediates out of the TCA cycle. We have to bring molecules back in to keep a steady concentration of TCA cycle intermediates. And these reactions have a very particular name called anapleurotic reactions. So you need to know that definition. They call this an amphibolic pathway because it serves both catabolic and anabolic processes. Again, providing many precursors for biosynthetic pathways, but it's also necessary to replenish these, uh, these molecules once, once they're used in biosynthesis. So again, anapleurotic reactions to fill up. There's this di dynamic um, situation that happens with the TCA cycle, and we have to keep that balance. We have to keep a steady state of the TCA cycle intermediates in order to make all of these things work all the time in a healthy cell. We're going to be going step-by-step step through the enzymes of the TCA cycle. And at the top of your screen, you see pyruvate, the three-carbon molecule. Um, um, and we lose some CO2. And so then now we have two carbons attached to the CoA. We now call it acetyl-CoA. And if you follow the carbons around, they help drive the citric acid cycle forward. There's eight steps, or sorry, yes, eight steps. Um, in the TCA cycle, and you have to know the enzyme names as well. Um, if you look historically in some of your textbooks, uh, succinate thiokinase um, is also has a different name, and I had it flashing a minute ago. Well, um, succinyl-CoA synthetase. So it's the same reaction. Succinyl-CoA synthetase. If you look at reaction 5, succinyl-CoA synthetase, the old-fashioned name, Scientists, when they were studying how this um, enzyme worked, they were going from succinate to succinyl-CoA. So they used GTP to give the energy to drive this reaction forward. But now if we're speaking about the reaction, the cycle going in a clockwise fashion, they now call it succinyl-thiokinase, realizing that it also generates GTP by substrate-level phosphorylation. The first reaction you have to, you have to memorize is uh, where we make our NADH in the first step of the TCA cycle, and that's at isocitrate dehydrogenase. The next one, at alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. We make an FADH2 molecule um, at succinate dehydrogenase. And NADH is also made at dehydro malate dehydrogenase. So reactions 3, 4, 6, and 8 generate 
um, these reducing equivalents, or, or they have the electron carriers, three, four, and eight. And this is where we, um, we the reactions where we generate NADH. And you have to remember the reaction where we generate GTP by substrate level phosphorylation. The first reaction, acetyl-CoA um, plus oxaloacetate to give that citrate. Now, there's a lot of energy in that bond between um, the sulfur and the, the acetyl group, and that, that high-energy bond actually helps drive the rea this reaction forward to generate uh, citrate. So if there's acetyl-CoA in the cell, in the mitochondria, and oxaloacetate will have a rapid reaction an energetically irreversible reaction to form our citrate. The second um, reaction is citrate, is isomerized by isocitrate to iconotase. Now I have a little star beside this because there's an inhibitor of this um, reaction. So if somebody, um, if somebody is given this inhibitor, they'll, they'll stop the TCA cycle reaction. So that's in one of the later slides. The third step, this is irreversible oxidative decarboxylation by Oh, yay, okay. So um, reaction number three, isocitrate dehydrogenase, this is a reaction that yields um, NADH. And this is allosteric inactivation by ATP in NADH. So it's inhibited by those two molecules. And this is when your cell, it makes sense because this is when your cell is in a high energy state. And it's, it's stimulated by ADP and calcium. The fourth reaction is the conversion of alpha-ketoglutarate to succinyl-CoA by alpha-ketoglutarate complex. Uh, sorry, yes, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex. So this is the complex that looks a lot like pyruvate dehydrogenase, uses the same um, cofactors for the activity, the same bound groups. So it's the same type of reaction, and it also generates um, a CO2. You'll be learning when, you, when you, you've already studied some of the amino acids, yes? And, and the nitrogen, how um, glutamine um, is, is the, um, the amino acid group and, and alpha-ketoglutarate is the alpha-keto acid. So you just have to aminate alpha-ketoglutarate and you have that glutamate. And then um, glutamate can be converted to uh, glutamic acid by another further step, yes? So with this reaction, we release the second CO2 and we also form the second molecule of NADH. And we have um, calcium will stimulate activity and the high energy molecules NADH and its product succinyl-CoA. This will inhibit the, re the, re the activity of alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. 
The next reaction is the succino succinate thiokinase, also known as succinyl-CoA synthetase, synthase. And here we um, use that high-energy bond between uh, the succinyl group and the CoA, helping to drive that substrate-level phosphorylation, uh, GDP to GTP, which is energetically equivalent to ATP. So we yield the succinate, and you'll notice that it's a reversible reaction. The next molecule, succinate dehydrogenase, if you didn't know before, I'm telling you now that succinate dehydrogenase is complex two of the electron transport chain. FAD here is reduced to FADH. Um, so we, we've yielded the fumarate, reaction number seven. Fumarate is hydrated um, to malate by this fumarase molecule. Malate dehydrogenase is the last of eight steps, which generates from malate. We also generate an NADH. And now we have that oxaloacetate. And that oxaloacetate um, is a very important molecule because it's pivotal um, in, in uh, intermediate metabolism. We need oxaloacetate to feed into the first step of the citric acid cycle, where acetyl-CoA and oxaloacetate come together to form uh, that citrate, citric acid. And oxaloacetate can also be fed into, I believe it's gluconeogenesis, lots of important things. And that's the alpha keto acid. If we put an amine group on it, we have aspartate. So oxaloacetate does a lot of things in the cell. So the regulation of, PD, of the TCA, we have citrate synthases, enzyme number one, isocitrate dehydrogenase number two, and alpha ketoglutarate dehydrogenase is number three. Your Lippincott textbook has a nice illustration of the three reactions that um, help regulate the citric acid cycle. The first reaction is so energetically favorable that um, the only thing that really inhibits this reaction, if there's oxaloacetate around and there's acetyl-CoA around, we will make that citrate, and it's only very high concentrations of citrate that will actually inhibit that reaction. That reaction wants to go. The next reaction, um, the isocitrate dehydrogenase. High energy state of the cell will inhibit the reaction. Low energy cell, uh, low energy cell state will stimulate the reaction in calcium. In the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex, NADH will inhibit. So um, product inhibition, succinyl-CoA, stimulated by calcium. So the next few slides are just step-by-step step, the, the details that you need to know for these three actions that are regulated. Citrate synthase irreversible, inhibited by its product, activated primarily by substrate. So if substrate is around, this reaction will go. Isocitrate dehydrogenase, this is another irreversible reaction, and uh, it's allosterically activated by ADP and calcium, and it's inhibited um, when the cell is in a high energy state. The third um, regulated um, reaction, and that's the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. Again, I have to remind you again, structurally similar to pyruvate dehydrogenase with the E1, E2, and E3 catalytic domains, and they have the five coenzymes, the same five coenzymes, activated by calcium and inhibited by product. If you're thinking about the, act, uh, the energy that's generated from the TCA cycle, we have basically direct equivalence. One molecule of NADH will generate about three ATPs. About, because you'll see um, work calculated by, by different groups, it's around, if you round up, it's three. 
So if we have three NADH generated by the TCA cycle, that's the equivalent of nine ATPs. We know we have one GTP generated by substrate level phosphorylation, so it's one to one ratio. GTP is one ATP equivalent. Then we have one FADH2 that's generated, and that's the equivalent of ATP. Now, if you add this together, we have 12 ATP per acetyl-CoA oxidized. How many acetyl-CoAs do we make per glucose molecule? Two. Nice. We have a few clinical notes that we're going to finish off um, this first lecture with, and that's thiamine deficiency, which creates low PDH activity. So this is one of the cofactors, thiamine, TPP. Results in Wernicke-Korsakoff um, syndrome, characterized by ataxia, ophthalmoplegia, memory loss, cerebral hemorrhage. People who are at risk for this are alcoholics or malnourished individuals. So we would have to have a chronic alcoholic and chronically malnourished individuals. And if we um, put that with heart failure, decreased ATP, increased cardiac output, it's also known as wet beriberi. And this is one a uh, favorite um, reaction, uh, sorry, a favorite topic to ask test questions on. So I would say that this is probably a very high-yield slide, if you want to call it that, yeah? Put a big star. There's other thiamine-requiring um, enzymes, and that's the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex and the branch-chain alpha-ketodehydrogenase complex, also known as BCKDH. So again, nice star. You should know everything that's on this slide. Yes? Um, that's the acronym for branch-chain alpha-ketoacid dehydrogenase. What is it? You're going to be learning. I don't, did you learn about maple syrup urine disease? No. Well, there's a complex in the cell, and you may be learning about it later. There's a complex inside uh, in, in the cell that helps um, metabolize the branch-chain amino acids. And if we have a defect in that, that actually leads to something called maple syrup urine disease. But it acts, that enzyme complex requires um, thiamine. So if you don't learn it in, in this biochemistry um, class, it might be something that you need to know a little bit later on in your career. Okay. Pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency, and this is something wrong with one of the complexes or one of the catalytic um, uh, domains itself. The metabolic effect is a very high concentration of pyruvate, and because you have high concentrations of pyruvate, where we have those other reactions, the reduction reaction and the transamination reaction, if we have high pyruvate, we will also see high lactic acid and high alanine. And the high lactic acid is very toxic to the brain. We have see a very low production of acetyl-CoA and a very severe reduction in ATP production. So clinical features, um, if somebody has a difficulty here, it's often seen um, uh, in children. Lactic acidosis, neurological defects because of that lactic acidosis, extreme myopathy, and it's typically fatal at an early age. The pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency, it, has, it actually has dysmorphology associated with it, and we see agenesis of the corpus callosum, so it, it can actually be diagnosed by MRI. We have the, these clinical features, the frontal prominence, wide nasal bridge, flared nares, wide nasal bridges between the two eyes, um, 
uh, flared nares, and that's at the bottom of the nose. And long philtrum, that's the space between the base of the nose and the top lip. We see brain malformations, and that's the corpus callosum agenesis, and that's highlighted here with a red arrow, and it's a, the, 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 the strong white signal. And we also see cerebral and basal ganglia cysts. Pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency can arise from mutations in the proteins for E1 or E2 or E3. Heavy metal poisoning from the disruption of pyruvate metabolism. The SH group on the lipoic acid that's attached to the E2, um, sometimes that can be disrupted by arsenate, mercury, or lead. So they have a high affinity for these SH groups. So lipoic acid, which is again one of the cofactors of the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, and that's supposed to help carry that acetyl group um, from the pyruvate over to uh, the, uh, uh, the CoA. So if we have a difficulty there, if we have something chelated, in the middle of that molecule at the bottom, we have the dihydrolipoamide from pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. Arsenate can complex into there, and then it freezes the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex activity. It freezes it. Pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, again, will become inactive when the heavy metals are bound, and it's very neurotoxic because the central nervous system it solely depends on glucose metabolism, sometimes um, ketones, but it needs the glucose metabolism for, through oxidative phosphorylation. It doesn't really use the, the fatty acids as a food source, so it's very toxic to the brain. A treatment for this is, is a competition. You can give somebody lipoic acid. You can find it in a pill form. You can put it in a, in a smoothie. and You can actually treat somebody from one of these poisonings just by giving lipoic acid. It makes your pee stink a little bit, but otherwise it, it won't harm you. Malfunctions of the citric acid cycle. Fluoroacetate inhibits an enzyme called aconitase, and that's one of the enzymes I asked you to, that we put that little yellow star on. It's actually a substrate for citrate synthase, but once it converts um, fluoroacetate to fluorocitrate, then it'll, it will inhibit the aconitase. And um, a molecule called malinate inhibits succinate dehydrogenase, and that's a competitive inhibitor. And vitamin deficiencies. If we're deficient in any, any of these vitamins, that will affect the activity of um, the PDH cycle and the citric acid cycle at the alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase complex. Okay, non-clicker question. Did anybody pick one? No. Anybody? You're very quiet today. Anybody pick two? No. Anybody pick three? Okay, who picked five? Okay. Now, I might dress up this question with a fancy stem and have clinical features attached to it, but it would be essentially the same question. You should know it. You have to know it. Okay? Where's that substrate-level phosphorylation reaction happening? 
And so I'll give you a nice long break. See you back at 11. <laughs>